This program is made possible entirely by you, the listeners, for all the ways you can help, including signing up for a membership. Check out the support box at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Daily Show, Citizen Radio, The Onion Radio News, The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, and On the Media, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. which I assume makes him the current governor of Old Mexico. Please welcome Governor Gary Johnson. Thanks. Sir, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Now, sir, uh, you, you are the former government, uh, governor of New Mexico. Yes. Correct? Yes, I am. Now, I get confused. Is that the good Mexico? That is the, that is the United States of America. Okay. Now, you, let's get right to the, 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 the heat of the meat. I think that marijuana should be legalized. I think that 90% of the drug problem today is prohibition-related. Uh, I think that it's crazy that half of what we spend on law enforcement, the courts, and the prisons is drug-related, about $70 billion a year. I think it's insane that we're arresting 1.8 million people a year in this country on drug-related crime. And Stephen, when I say legalize marijuana, it's never going to be legal to smoke pot, do harm to others. It's never going to be legal for kids to smoke pot. Are you high right now? I'm high being are you, on this show. Are you I'm high right, high are you high high right now? Because we're going to save the hairs in your comb and we're going to test them. <laughs> Just tell me now, because this would be hell if I find out tomorrow. Test away, buddy. It. Test away. Now, how, now you, you, uh, you were, uh, were two-term former governor uh, uh, of, of New Mexico. Now, while you were there... Um, you not only uh, were uh, pro-marijuana, you support abortion white rights and gay unions. Is that why you're a former governor? Because <laughs> what may be, what may uh, be what? sunk I, I in was, all this, what may know, be forgetting is that Republican, former Republican you, governor. You, you know, I, I was term limited, Stephen, but I'm a yeah, believer. Yeah, that's what happens when you get kicked in, out of office. I'm a believer in term limits. You I, believe I, in term I, limits? Absolutely. I do, too. I if I disagree with the politician, do I would that they wouldn't ordinarily do if, they, if they're term limited. And I probably come under that category. Would I have been as bold as uh, coming out and saying that uh, marijuana should be legal, even though I think everybody knows that. Uh, no, not everybody knows that, sir. You smoke marijuana is a gateway drug. You know, it is uh, a gateway drug. Surprisingly, gateway drug. surprisingly, it's not. Surprising. You surprisingly, it's not. Well, you smoke pot in 24 hours, you will be doing heroin <laughs> and turning tricks for street track. It has happened. It has happened, sir. To um, good men, um, better men than um, you. Amazingly, statistics would suggest that by legalizing or decriminalizing mm -hmm. marijuana and mm -hmm. other drugs like Holland and Portugal, that it would You've actually. Been to Holland? Li You've been to Holland? I have. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah with coffee bars. <laughs> No, I don't think, I, I disagree. That's not the Holland that I saw. I, I saw a Holland with 60% the drug use is that of the United States. And that's kids, that's adults, that's marijuana, that's hard drugs. Well, they have fewer people. Well, uh, on a per capita basis. Yeah, on but a per, per, on capita per capita, capita basis. they have fewer people too. <laughs> 60% isn't as big a percentage as it is here. That's like... That's, Do you know that's that, much that, that Portugal, uh, effectively having decriminalized drugs, has actually shown statistics to show a decrease in use per capita on a per capita basis? Now, uh, you, you not only, you not only uh, want to uh, decriminalize it, you say, and I want to get this right because it is horrible. <laughs> you say we should try to make, uh, make smoking... Uh, sound great to kids. You should tell kids how great smoking pot is. You should, say it's good. Should tell kids the truth. Uh, and by telling kids, look, look, over You half. say the smoking pot is great? I, I said you, that my one cup of that stuff, everybody around you has a head like a wolf. <laughs> I don't drink, I don't drink, Stephen. Uh, I've smoked marijuana. I choose not to smoke marijuana. But when I smoked it the first time, you know what I thought when I smoked it the first time? I what? thought the government lied. I just think the government should tell the truth when it comes to these drugs. Look, marijuana is safer than alcohol. Don't, don't trust me on this, but the uh, city of Denver, uh, five years ago, voted on the decriminalization of marijuana on a campaign based on marijuana being safer than alcohol. Of so course they would do that. They're a mile high to start with. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
There's some, there's some word out there. The buzz is, the buzz, sir, out there is that you might uh, be floating your name out there to be president in 2012. How could that possibly be? I'm here espousing the legalization of marijuana and harm reduction <laughs> no, strategies I'm not, regarding all I'm, the other drugs. I'm just Steven, saying it's more proof that you're burnt right now. Who's been smoking marijuana? Come on. Come on. Well, good luck corrupting America's youth, sir. Gary Johnson, former governor of New Mexico. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. I would like to know whether you think it is a good idea to try to organize the black schools in the South against the drug war, like Spelman College and, and others. The reason I ask is because I think that this is something that they would do because it directly affects their communities. The other reason I want to organize the black schools is to try and get the whole of the black community and the civil rights community. Because it seems to me that these groups seem to get outraged when someone says a racial slur. I'm assuming he means like Imus, for, uh, for example. Somewhere in the Deep South, when the country has 800,000 people getting charged with simple possession each year, most of them black, that doesn't really interest them. It would be like during the Holocaust, the main Jewish organ organization being told about the death camps, but also being told about a racial slur against them and saying, you know, I think we're going to fight against the guy who said the racial slur. I have to cut him off right here yeah, because I what I need to point out is is you're wrong it's not the activist community who is putting more emphasis on the racial slurs than the prison sentences it's the media yeah the media it's a really attractive story to go after don imus and you have that the soundbite of nappy headed hose and uh, yeah i just have to say for decades uh al sharpton jesse jackson have been working to repeal some of the more um you know archaic drug laws like the, the the Rockefeller drug laws. So they've been working extremely hard. It's just that, like Jamie said, when there's a sensational story like the Dom Imus thing, they jump all over it. Yeah. So... Can, can you be doing more? Should you participate in it? Yes, absolutely. If you feel passionately about this, join the fight. But yeah. it's not as though that fight hasn't been going on already. Right. And I would also say, I mean, like any issue... You know, I, I think what he's asking, but not trying to be overt with, mm. is, am I going to seem racist if I show up to only black schools and say, I want to organize you to fight the war on drugs? So like, is it, that a weird... Well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, okay, I was going to say, I take it he's not black, but I don't think, you know, it's not as though you're going to show up saying, I feel very passionately about this cause, and they're going to be like... Get out of here, Whitey. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know if he's white or black or Latino or whatever. Right. But yeah, I mean, if he showed up and was like, hey, black guys, you all do drugs. <laughs> let's let's try to legalize this. Then I would be like, okay, now we're stereotyping. But I mean, he is right with the statistics. The majority of prisoners in America are nonviolent drug offenders and the majority of them are black. And I, I do see the point he was trying to make with, you know... Yeah, I mean, there should be much more outrage, and and this is a, a huge thing that is destroying black communities. Um, I would say my kind of my compromise advice is if you're this passionate about the issue, which I really really admire, then I totally think that you should be getting all schools to be doing it. I mean, especially with the war on drugs. The key with ending the failing war on drugs, look, study after study comes out saying that it has failed on every level. It is costing too much money. It is putting innocent people in jail. It is destroying communities. It is the cause of violence and problems at our border with Mexico. There are so many, even Glenn Beck is opposed to it. However, um, you know, you, you should get 
young people are going to be even with those studies the studies people don't care these old fucks are set in their ways and until they die well, they're not going to change their mind they care when they've got the glaucoma and they want and they want weed they right. want to smoke it yeah. so i would say you're on the right track with colleges and if that's your area if you live by spellman if you yes Totally, they should be on board. But every college should be on board. Because it is yeah. something that young kids... Because even the selfish, narcissistic kids want to get high. Right. And I do think that there needs to be more unity within the progressive community. And I think the biggest issue that progressives really need to unite on is poverty. And that actually ties nicely into the war on drugs debate because most of the prisoners, and in fact, I would say almost 100% of them who have gone to jail for drugs are also poor because they couldn't afford the necessary legal representation or they came from poor communities. So the issues of racism, the war on drugs and poverty actually all come from the same place you know it comes from the underclass so if we could unite and we you know we could all manage to turn up together at some of these protests we would be an overwhelming force right yeah i mean that's the thing is progressives do i mean all progressives are are for the most part i'm assuming once you have the facts going to be against the war on drugs so i would just say bring those facts everywhere but the, the the main thing, the, the only problem I had with, with your email is, yeah, there have been so many amazing groups working on prison reform, the war on drugs. I mean, those things really go hand in hand. And... Yeah, if anything, not to um, say that uh, this listener is white, but white progressives from the north are actually late to this party. You yeah. know, the, the black poor community has been struggling with this far longer than we've been aware of. So we actually could learn a lot from them. So if you go into these communities, they're the experts on doing this. They know the kids who are in jail. They know the laws because they've had to, they've been suffering under them for so much longer. Now, a lot of these groups are doing it under the name of like prison reform, for example, because unfortunately we've been so trained to hear war on drugs and to think that anything having to do with legalizing drugs implies just a bunch of kids wanting to go get high. So when you talk about it as prison reform is much healthier, if Al Sharpton went on MSNBC and said we need to legalize drugs and phrased it that way, people would just be like crazy fucking Al Sharpton wants to go get high on the corner when in reality it really is a bigger issue. The Drug Czar is toppled by drug Bolsheviks. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. In a completely unexpected and violent move, drug Bolsheviks stormed the offices of U.S. Drug Czar John P. Walters and took control of the entire department. Drug Revolutionary Committee leader Victor Donegan accused the ousted drug czar of corruption and ignoring the will of the people. I mean, man... The drug drug czar was a part of an outdated system, and we are the people. The people of new ideas who stand for a better tomorrow for all. The Bolshevik ruling council plans to distribute confiscated drugs and drug paraphernalia from each according to his ability to each according to his desired buzz. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Clean my room until I got high. <laughs> I was gonna get up and find the broom, but then I got high. Uh, my room is still messed up, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, cause I got high. Because 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 I got high. 
He was the first public editor of the New York Times. He's also an author. His latest book is Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Please welcome to the program, Daniel Okrant. Sir. Very nice to see you, sir. Very nice to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. The book is called Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Uh, Mr. Okrant, I ask you this question. How could something so delicious so popular, so integral to our sense of uh, fighting at two in the morning. How could that, how could, how could they, how could politicians ban something like I that? I wanted to call the book, How the Hell Did That Happen? Yes! It would have been a much better title. And incredibly unlikely that there was this popular movement that actually amended the Constitution. You know, the Constitution only had two things in it that limited the rights of individuals. You couldn't own slaves, and for 13 years, you couldn't legally get a drink. And look how long it took us to do the slave thing. The slave thing, you would think, oh, that's a no-brainer. They'll probably take care of that within the first five years. <laughs> it took us years in a war. This, how long did it take them? They started the movement really in... in well, it starts in the, in, in the middle of the 19th century, but they don't talk about a constitutional amendment until 1913, mm -hmm. and six years later, they get one. It's astonishing. You know, since then, our constitutional amendments are things like, you know, let's... Let's move Inauguration Day from, Jan from March to January. Right. But the, the whole country got behind this. You, had, you had, had to get two-thirds of Congress, both houses of Congress, and you had to get three-quarters of the state legislatures. There wasn't a majority for people for it, just incredible political manipulation like we've never seen before or have seen since. Who was leading? Who was leading? Who were who the... It, it's a very diverse group. There's Kerry Nation. There's all kinds of it's people. An it was an incredible range, range of groups from uh, at one end of the, uh, the spectrum, the, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, which for them it was an anti-immigrant thing. But at the other end, the very left-wing industrial workers of the world. They were for prohibition because they thought liquor was a tool that the capitalists were using to keep the working man down. Now, what? <laughs> I thought that was a tool and, that and, kept and, the working and, man and, working. And to keep, and to keep uh, well, so, and television so hosts. Yeah. Is it the only thing the Klan and the Wobblies, are, is the only thing they ever agreed on? Is, I, I, I would think so. And in between many, many other groups, the Progressive Party was involved, and of course the women's suffrage movement. The women's suffrage movement and the prohibition movement were siblings. They moved together. And the women supported prohibition. And the only thing that the Anti-Saloon League, the organization that, 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 that uh, ran the prohibition effort, the only other thing that they supported was voting rights for women. And even the KKK supported voting rights for women because they thought women would vote for prohibition and you know what they did and they and, and the blowback of that was uh, it changed He was the first public editor of the New York Times. He's also an author. His latest book is Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Please welcome to the program, Daniel Okrant. Sir. Very nice to see you, sir. Very nice to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. The book is called Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Uh, Mr. Okrant, I ask you this question. How could something so delicious so popular, so integral to our sense of uh, fighting at two in the morning. How could that, how could, how could they, how could politicians ban something like I that? I wanted to call the book, How the Hell Did That Happen? Yes! It would have been a much better title. And incredibly unlikely that there was this popular movement that actually amended the Constitution. You know, the Constitution only had two things in it that limited the rights of individuals. You couldn't own slaves, and for 13 years, you couldn't legally get a drink. And look how long it took us to do the slave thing. The slave thing, you would think, oh, that's a no-brainer. They'll probably take care of that within the first five years. <laughs> it took us years in a war. This, how long did it take them? They started the movement really in... in well, it starts in the, in, in the middle of the 19th century, but they don't talk about a constitutional amendment until 1913, mm -hmm. and six years later, they get one. It's astonishing. You know, since then, our constitutional amendments are things like, you know, let's... Let's move Inauguration Day from, Jan from March to January. Right. But the, the whole country got behind this. You had, you had, had to get two-thirds of Congress, both houses of Congress, and you had to get three-quarters of the state legislatures. There wasn't a majority for people for it, just incredible political manipulation like we've never seen before or have seen since. Who was leading? Who, who was leading? Who, who were the... It, it's a very diverse group. There's Kerry Nation. There's all kinds it was of people. An it was an incredible range, range of groups from uh, at one end of the, uh, the spectrum, the, K the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, which for them it was an anti-immigrant thing. But at the other end, 
the very left-wing industrial workers of the world. They were for prohibition because they thought liquor was a tool that the capitalists were using to keep the working man down. Now, what? I thought that was a tool and, that and, kept and, the working and, man and, working. And to keep, and to keep uh, well, so, and television so host. The, yeah. Is it the only thing, the Klan and the Wobblies, are, is the only thing they ever agreed on? Is, I, I, I would think so. And in between, many, many other groups. The Progressive Party was involved, and of course the women's suffrage movement. The women's suffrage movement and the prohibition movement were siblings. They moved together. And the women supported prohibition. And the only thing that the Anti-Saloon League, the organization that, 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 that uh, ran the prohibition effort, the only other thing that they supported was voting rights for women. And even the KKK supported voting rights for women because they thought women would vote for prohibition. And you know what? They did. And, they, and, and the blowback of that was uh, it changed the social culture of bars in that uh, the suffrage movement voted against it, but ended up integrating bars. Well, I don't know what they were saying, people. But yeah, it was before then, the saloon was an all-male institution. And then along comes prohibition. All the rules go out. The speakeasy opens up. Suddenly women are there. And if you've got women in a, in a bar, you need to have music. And so... Nightclubs are born during the 1920s. We're grateful for that. The powder room, you know, the, the, sure, you, the can't powder live, room. you can't live without the powder room. You know, the, the old saloons were all male. They didn't have a women's room, but hey, let's put something underneath the staircase, and suddenly we've changed uh, plumbing in this America was, for, uh, forever. Uh, the, the, exactly. It was uh, the first invention uh, in the 20s of beer goggles. Oh, that, yeah. That yeah, came yeah. around <laughs> in the 1920s. Absolutely directly a result of the Constitution, yeah, sure. At what point... In Prohibition, which is a 13-year uh, period of our history, at what point do they realize, oops? I would say, well, Prohibition begins on January 17th, 1920, and I'd say it probably happened around January 19th, 1920. <laughs> I mean, the, the arrest began immediately. But, you know, th those who believed in it, they continued to believe in it against all the, in the evidence that it was a huge failure. It doesn't really begin to fall apart, though, in the law until 1929 with the stock market crash. What does that have to do with it? Well, the government suddenly doesn't have a lot of income tax to collect. There are no capital gains taxes. Where can we get the money to run the government? Oh, do you remember the excise tax on alcohol? Let's bring it back. And that's really the thing that brought prohibition to an end. Now, wasn't that, though, didn't the movement of the drives, in order to get prohibition in the first place, didn't they have to promise to uh, uh, make up for the money that was lost by passing the income tax. Wasn't that their, their first move? A absolutely, and it, it, it demonstrates that money determines everything, finally, I suppose. That, yeah, until as, far as, as late as 1910, 40% of all federal revenue came from the tax on beer, wine, and liquor. And until you had the income tax amendment until 1913, there was no way you could have prohibition. So they, they kind of secretly supported that as well. And to be fair, we were fair. a drunken lot. We, we were, in, in this time period, we were far more drunken than even now. We oh, yeah, were we more. were a mess. We mm -hmm. we would wake up and go like, oh my God, did we Cuba last night? Like mm -hmm. we were. <laughs> this country was hammered. Well, it starts in the beginning. You know, George Washington actually gave liquor to people who voted for him, and uh, when he was running for the House of Burgesses, uh, James Madison drank a pint of whiskey every day. John and he was Ab like five. And two. he was like, dude, that's a lot for a little guy like him. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, it, it just, it was part of American life. In 1830, that was the one we drank the most. It was seven and a half gallons of pure alcohol a year. That's the equivalent of 90 fifths of 80 proof liquor. For every man, woman, and child over 15, that was the average consumption. Now, if may you consider... I, may I? Mm, I Those were the days, days, my friend. I thought they'd never end. No. Uh, it, it's, it's an astonishing story. Is there a legacy of prohibition in your mind that, that is a positive? legacy, whether it be for the lesson learned or, or... Yeah, I think the lesson learned is that you can't, you can't legislate against people's appetites and they're going to do what they want to do, whether you legislate against it or not. And we have evidence of that surrounding us all the time. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot going on today that is very uh, a reflection of what happened during Prohibition. Marijuana is the obvious uh, uh, example. And in fact, during Prohibition, you know, th there was, it was legal to get medicinal liquor. You could just go to your, you go to your doctor, you, for three bucks you buy a prescription. Now on Venice Beach in Los Angeles, it costs a hundred bucks for a prescription for marijuana. <laughs> you take it down to your pharmacy and he'd fill it and you could get a pint of liquor every ten days. Charles Walgreen had twenty drugstores in 1920. In 1930, he had 525. <laughs> it, wasn't it wasn't milkshakes. It wasn't milkshakes. Exactly. Uh, fascinating story and, and, and well documented and completely different than what I sort of imagined it from sixth grade civics. But uh, <laughs> last call, it's on the bookshelves now. You gotta run out and grab it. It's a great one. Daniel Oakburn, thanks so much for being here. Drink the water, drink it down. This time I know I'm back to spit it back up. 
I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives as it reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Some reporters work a beat their whole lives without any tangible result. But last week, Chicago writer and reporter John Conroy became one of the lucky ones when he was able to report on the conviction of a one-time Chicago police commander named John Burge. For 30 years, accusations swirled around Burge that he'd led a group of police officers in torturing dozens and dozens of mostly poor black suspects to extract confessions in a detective division known as Area 2 on Chicago's south side. Despite internal investigations finding him guilty, despite being fired from the police force, despite then-Illinois Governor George Ryan being so alarmed at the implications of so many false confessions that he established a moratorium on the death penalty in Illinois in the year 2000, Burge had never been convicted of a crime. That is, until last week, when Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald secured a conviction for perjury and obstruction of justice. At that point, John Conroy had been reporting and reporting and reporting on Burge and his conduct for more than 20 years. It started in 1989 when Conroy was at the Chicago Reader working on a book about how ordinary people become involved in torture. He got a tip about a little-noticed lawsuit in his own backyard brought by a man convicted of shooting two police officers who accused Burge of torture. Andrew Wilson alleged he'd been given an electric shock with two different devices and that he'd been suffocated with a plastic bag. He also said he'd been burned against a radiator, although I actually think the radiator burning was accidental. They pressed him up against a radiator, didn't realize they were leaving marks, because the goal, of course, is never to leave marks. And it was during the course of that trial that anonymous letters started arriving in the offices of Wilson's attorneys, and they came in police department envelopes, and they were clearly written by somebody who knew Area 2 and the detectives who worked in it, and he tipped those lawyers off to another victim who was then in Cook County Jail. Turned out that victim had been tortured back in 1982, nine days before Wilson was, and he led them to a couple of other victims, and they in turn led them to others. The law firm that maintains the most accurate list has 110 victims, so the whole thing snowballed out of the Andrew Wilson case. How many people were ultimately implicated in the Area 2 scandal, and what became of them? There are dozens of detectives who have been implicated. Some of them have gone on to work for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office as investigators. Some work for the city as investigators. One of them started his own private detective agency. Some of them are retired. A few of them are dead. None of them have been charged with any crimes. Turns out the word torture is a little squishy legally. Tell me why. There is no such thing as a law against torture in the state of Illinois or indeed in any other state that I'm aware of. If you were going to charge someone with giving electric shock, you'd have to charge them with aggravated assault or aggravated battery, official misconduct, perjury if the torturer lied about it. In the state of Illinois, there's a three-year statute of limitations on charges of assault, aggravated assault, things like that. So unless you can indict within a three-year period or you can show an ongoing conspiracy to obstruct justice, which requires a renewing act every three years, all of those acts become untouchable. So it's a war crime to torture somebody, but it's not a peace crime. This is true. So now let's talk about the journalistic issue. If there is no statute prohibiting torture... Does that mean that you cannot use that word in describing the, the aggravated assaults that took place? 
I think you can use the word. First of all, the Office of Professional Standards, the Chicago Police Department's division that investigates police use of excessive force, said torture was systematic at Area 2 and the command members knew about it. By anybody's definition, electric shock and suffocation, mock execution, burning against a radiator, all of these fall within the definition of torture. To refrain from describing it as torture is irresponsible. Tell me the media history of this story. Tell me about the story you first broke and then what happened in the ensuing years. I sat through these two civil suits because the first one ended in a mistrial. And at the end of that, I did a story for the reader. That sparked an internal investigation by the police department. They cite that story as, quote, a sound starting point. And as a result, in 1993, Burge was fired from the police force. The press covered the firing as sort of a one-day story and never bothered to investigate what the implications of him having abused suspects were. You know, I continued to hammer at the issue from different angles because we couldn't keep saying the same thing. I went up the ladder. I wrote about prosecutors and their involvement in the case. I wrote about Mayor Daley and his involvement. I wrote about uh, the father of one of the victims who was a police officer and... In about 98, the Tribune started to cover it, and Steve Mills and Maury Posley did a great job. They uh, incorporated it into their death penalty series, which examined the use of the death penalty in Illinois from a lot of different angles, and their stories really led to the moratorium on the death penalty in Illinois. It's interesting to note that Posley was shown the door by the Tribune about two years ago, and they transferred Mills to the food safety beat. You and the guys from the Tribune seem to be classic poster children for the chaos in the newspaper business, to the point that you found yourself blogging for WBEC, I'm going to assume not for a great deal of money, just to see this case get to resolution. Are you that poster child? (laughs) I guess I am one of them. If you look at the Tribune, uh, they had the best sources in the country on criminal justice, and both of those reporters are now off that beat or gone. And you? Now what? I'm hoping WBEZ will pick up the blog as some sort of permanent feature, but I don't know. In the meantime, I try to freelance. I write scripts for a guy who does uh, health videos for the web. I wrote some copy for a bicycle parts manufacturer. I may do a story about torture for uh, Rotary International's magazine. Meeting the mortgage every month, it causes me to break out in sweats sometimes. In today's environment, would this story be covered? Will the next Area 2 be uncovered by the Chicago Reader or anybody else? I would say there's a 50-50 chance that somebody will uncover it, and maybe it's even less than that. Certainly it won't be done by the Reader. They don't have any investigative reporters anymore, and it's not going to be uncovered by reporters like Mills and Polesley who would go down and examine court files for six months. Uh, that's not going to happen. There is this belief out there among bloggers that citizen journalists are just as good. If you look at the coverage of the Burge trial, you can see the error in that thinking. I can think of one case in which a blogger did original research and wrote about a case on their own. So it's going to require some lawyers to do all the work themselves and hand it to a reporter Uh, or it's going to require some reporter at their paper to argue that they should be allowed to take a lot of time and document exactly what's happened to suspects at whatever police station the allegations come from. Well, John, thank you so much. You're welcome. Chicago writer and reporter John Conroy is the author of Unspeakable Acts, Ordinary People, the dynamics of torture. He notes that although Burge faces up to 45 years behind bars, this story is far from over. There are at least 20 men who are still in prison based on contested confessions acquired by John Burge and his fellow officers.
Police officers in Virginia uh, tased a pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have video of the situation. I think out of all the taser, taser stories, this one pisses me off the most. And even more than the guy who got tased in the ass? Yes. Okay. All right. Then this is a doozy. Let's watch. Broke up a child's baptism party for excessive noise and in the process managed to taser a grandfather and a pregnant woman. Tonight, a Manassas family says cops went too far. Fox Stars' Robbie Chavez live down in the newsroom to kick us off now. Robbie? Brian, the 55-year-old homeowner is a church family counselor and a Bible study teacher. He was hosting a party for his new godchild. He and the pregnant mother of the baptized boys face serious charges. Tonight, they're fighting back. They say Prince William County Police used excessive force just to quiet down a backyard party. It was supposed to be a happy day to celebrate the baptism of these two little boys. This home video captures the party moments before police arrive following a noise complaint. Edgar Rodriguez says the backyard celebration came to an abrupt halt. After some confusion, his 55-year-old father says he was asked for an ID and handed it over. Then he was tasered three times. Three times. He took out his wallet and he gave his wallet to his wife. And at the point when he lifted up his, his license, that's when he started feeling the electrical shocks in his back. All of a sudden, he got tased in the back. And then again on this side at the same time. And then there was an officer in front of him that tased him from the front. So my dad was not under arrest. We never heard anybody say, sir, you're under arrest. Prince William County Police issued a statement confirming two people were tasered at the baptism party. A spokesman says, quote, the officers contacted the homeowner who was highly intoxicated. The officer, she says, explained the noise ordinance to the homeowner who refused several requests to turn down the loud music. The spokesman goes on to say Rodriguez began to act disorderly and refused to identify himself to officers. The home videotape captures some moments as Rodriguez was tasered three times, then charged with public intoxication in his own backyard. The pregnant mother of the baptized boys was tasered too. The family says the woman tried to help Rodriguez, who was on the ground. She was charged with assaulting a police officer. He tased her in the back. So she didn't assault an officer. She was assaulted by an officer. The family calls it excessive force, and they say all of it happened in front of a yard full of children. When they came in, you know, they were in a defensive mode, like if we were criminals. I mean, everybody felt like that's how we got treated, like if we were just all of a sudden criminals for celebrating a child's baptism. The pregnant All right, there you have it. Um, no, but the police would never, you know, act out of bounds and go to somebody's home and uh, arrest them for disorderly conduct when they didn't deserve it, right? Right. That's what we learned from the Gates and Crowley situation in Cambridge, right? Police would never do that. I mean, how much more information did you need? I mean, you got the backyard full of kids. What are you doing going around tasing people for? Yeah, and I got the impression that the police officers, three of them, tased him at the same time. Is that really necessary? Look, they tri Look there's two things here. W one... They're treating the tasers like gun, uh, toys. Right. You know, they can't wait to use them. They're like, oh, just you know that they talk to them to one another, talking about, oh, you know, give me the slightest opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And uh, you know, who knows? Is it roid rage? I don't know what it is. But there's, I mean, now we've done so many stories of cops needlessly using these tasers. It's out of control. The number two, I'm tired of the race angle. I really am. But really, if it's a white family doing their baptism and they're, you know, got all the kids there and blah, blah, blah. Do they get tased like that in front of their kids? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe it's just out of control cops, right? Or maybe they think, who cares? It's minorities. They must be up to no good. 
uh, he's drunk, let's just tase him and arrest him and pretend he did something to us. By the way, disorderly conduct is the number one code word used by cops to arrest you when you've done absolutely nothing wrong. By the way, they didn't arrest him for disorderly conduct. They arrested him for public intoxication. In, in his backyard. In his backyard. Well, you can't be intoxicated in your backyard. Where the hell can you be intoxicated? And is that even considered public intoxication? Your home's your castle, right? I mean, you go do that to a right-winger, see what happens, right? I mean, you, you hear, okay, right? Because they say, don't come into my house, and you know, la, la, and I got guns, et cetera, et cetera. And meanwhile, you know, the, the minorities are the dangerous ones, mm -hmm. you know? I don't look. I don't know. I'm like I said. I'm tired of the racial thing, man. I, I, I wish we didn't have to go there. I wish that it wasn't an issue. But as I look at that, did it come to your mind or? Did, did, I, I, mean, I just I don't see him tasing a white pregnant lady. You know, maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong. And it, look, it's probably maybe it's a class thing more than a race thing. You know, in West Virginia, et cetera, could I see it happening? They get cops think, who cares? They're poor. They got no power, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I could, you know, I could see that, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not going to Beverly Hills and tasing a pe somebody in front of their kids. No, of course no not. Way. No way. No way, right? That's what part of the reason why the Cambridge thing was so unbelievable. You know, a Harvard professor, you know, and he gets arrested in his own home. And remember what I said. I said, thank God they didn't tase him. Right. Because you know that was next. Mm-hmm. Dave, I'm curious as to what your opinion is. What, what's your sense here? I mean, I, I like I don't think anybody's on the cop side here tasing the pregnant woman, et cetera, obviously. But it, my the question is, do you think that it has a racial component, a significant racial component? Uh, probably. Of course, we don't know. But yeah, probably. I don't know why this is gendering such conversation. Yeah, probably it does. Of okay. course. All right. All right. Dave's very clear on it. Okay. <laughs> then we move forward. All right. What are we having the conversation for? Okay. I'll, I'll go on a limb. Uh -huh. I say, of course, it is to a, to an extent, but they want to taser anybody they can get, they can they can see the opportunity to do it too. It's this is fun. Yeah, yeah that's because they're like I can't kill him. And then, uh, the reason I really say it is because of the the tasering the the guy in the ass story. Mm -hmm. I don't know what ethnicity that dude was, but and also there was a handicapped dude, wasn't there? A guy in a wheelchair, something like that. Mm -hmm. They just really don't care. It's it's they're like I can do this and he won't die. Cops may have had a certain percentage of okay. I can't shoot him because then oh now there's gonna be all this. I may have killed him. Oh, uh, they think this is just harmless. You know, I just found the answer. You want to start a uh, stop uh, or at least put a dent in the out of control tasing throughout the country. Make cops fill out a form every time they use their taser. Oh, that would work so well. You see what I'm saying? Because every time they fire their weapons, there's a lot of procedure to go through. A lot of bureaucracy, they got to go answer for it, et cetera, et cetera. So they're like, oh, you don't want to touch your weapon. It's a pain in the ass, right? Mm -hmm. So every time they use a taser, make them fill out three different forms. All of a sudden, the number of taser incidents would go down dramatically. Get the paperwork in order. Get the paperwork ready now. The AP just had this really comprehensive study that they um, reported on, where after 40 years, the war on drugs has met none of its goals. Uh-huh. It's cost... <laughs> I just imagine looking at a big checklist at War on Drugs headquarters. It's all frayed at the edges, and it's been sun bleached, and looking at like... Nothing, everyone. Nothing. Nothing. Not one. <laughs> it's cost over a trillion dollars. Okay. And this is a quote from the article. We've spent a trillion. We spent a tr nothing. We didn't get envelopes with our names on. <laughs> Drug use is rampant, and violence is even more brutal and widespread. So there was a raid in Detroit recently where the cops stormed this house and they ended up shooting and killing a seven-year-old girl. And the cops claimed that it was just kind of in the moment of chaos 
and they busted into this house, somebody shot, they returned fire, total accident. Except now the attorney for the family of the seven-year-old girl said that there's video showing that the cops acted first, that they shot first, that they threw a flash grenade into the house, which of course startles a family. Yeah, the cops said there was a lot of confusion because right. they threw a stun grenade in the house. Yes. Yeah. I, I've heard when a grenade comes barreling through your window, mm-hmm. chaos ensues. It does. Things get confusing. Things get a little a little hec- hectic, I think would be the right yeah. word. Um, thrown into a bit of a tizzy. Tizzy? Tizzy is a good word. I believe. Uh, yeah, except this, uh, this poor little kid got killed in the whole interaction. So... You know, this is just happening right after um, another video was highlighted on the internet showing a a drug raid in Minnesota, Missouri. Missouri, yeah, we we played it last week on the show. Yeah, and I've been writing a lot about it. Gone terribly wrong, uh, where once again they were raiding this house looking, looking for weed this time. And they didn't find any, but they ended up shooting a dog in uh, the... uh, Shot a dog, came in guns blazing when there were children involved. Then, I don't know if you heard this, but just as an extra fuck you, just because they can. This shows how unafraid they are of penalties. They found a a tiny bit of weed on this guy who, you see the video, he's sobbing because he thinks they killed his dog. And they charged him with... Child endangerment. Yeah, but what the I find people who come in with guns charged yet. What I find interesting though is, so all the libertarians were up in arms over that raid. Haven't heard the same amount of outcry over the Detroit thing. I haven't. Which is which? Which is the? It gets back to the basic point of what is the value of a black life in yeah. America? Yeah. You know, because I mean, especially when you go, I, I just cringe at like the thought of the dog versus the little girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what is the value of exactly, a... Exactly, yeah. Especially of a seven-year-old black well, girl. Well, especially, too, it's just like, and the dog died. No, 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 the dog's fine. No, um, and it's yeah. and the, just the spin machine that went in to effect immediately. Like, the cops said, the reason why they went in with this stun grenade is because they were looking for a, uh, a guy who had... They were looking for a, a suspected murderer who had killed someone... The way he killed somebody was so violent that they had to go in, you know, with a stun grenade yeah. within this home where they hadn't. It's like, well, you're supposed to protect the people in the home from that murderer, too, yeah. if that right. murderer's in the house. Aren't you the police of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Like, aren't you supposed to protect the little girl from him if he's in the house instead of just throwing a stun grenade? They also at one point said that the little girl's grandmother had wrestled a cop. And the gun, and in the and the and the and then in the ensuing wrestling, the gun went off. I love these cops now who are like, we just need to taser and put down everybody immediately because they just don't want to deal with any kind of pushback at all. Yeah, it's like you're so inadequate, inept that you can't handle a grandmother. Yeah. You shouldn't be a cop. Yeah, and a- that and then you'd use that as an excuse. This grandmother came running at me. <laughs> yeah, I was never trained for that at the academy. You didn't see the look in her eyes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. Like, take a boxing class, motherfucker. Like, like, yeah, you that's know what I mean. Awesome. I mean, for a grandmother, not even like a, a box. Yeah, <laughs> learn how to put your arms straight out, like when you were a kid and you would hold your sister's head, like just at a distance, and they would swing at you. Yes. Yeah, and she should be upset. You're in her house, even if you are after somebody who broke the law. Maybe she didn't know about that. Maybe yeah. she. And like, also, it's again, you're, if you're after one, you're not after the whole. It's not a gang. You're not of people, right. You're right. After one person. Well, I, I, because I, if we were to. Except their logic, that means every hostage standoff would last about five seconds because it'd be like, oh, another bank taking hostage, bomb it. Yes, you know right. what I mean, and everybody right. would then exactly. kill fucking yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm just so. I mean, we had you know it's still going on in the Bay Area with the with the Oscar Grant situation. And yeah, it's just the the. The, the idea that, like, you know, the cops came out and apologized for this. It was a tragedy. And it's like, it just seems so... Well, hold on. Let's recap. I actually talked about this. God, has it been, like, two years now? Cause I a think, year and a half. Uh, yeah, because I think I talked yeah. about it uh, in my Edinburgh show. Yes. But it was way, way too long ago. Like, um... And I, and I don't know if we've talked about it on the radio show, but just recap what happened. It was New Year's Eve, uh... So, 2008 into 2000. 2009, yeah, 2008, 2009. And it was at a BART station, right? It was right? a BART station, the Fruitvale BART, which Fruitvale BART in Oakland, when I live in the Bay Area, so I know is you know, it's an urban BART station, whatever that means. Uh, a BART just, uh, by the way, like a subway. Oh, yeah, it's just, like a yeah. subway. It's just their, our version of the subway. Uh, and uh, apparently the cops have been called to the scene for some sort of disturbance that had happened at the BART station. They showed up. Oscar Grant and some of his friends were there. They told them all to get on their knees, even though there's no, there's nothing that we've known about that says that they were causing the disturbance. Right. They were all on their knees, and the cop, 
uh, shot Oscar Grant at point blank range. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because it's 2000, and because it's the future now, it was caught on several different cell phone cameras. Yeah. And you can see it on YouTube. Uh, that, that there, and he was on his knees. They told him to lay down. There was He was not resisting in any way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and everybody was yelling and freaking out because they didn't know why. So he was essentially executed. Was, by, yeah, executed on, on, on camera. By someone who receives their gun from the government. Wasn't there and a... Claimed that claimed that he thought he was pulling his taser. Right. And that, though, to me, is a, a case not only against this idiot cop and, you know, whatever, but the, uh, the hazers, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and also, there was nothing... If you look, Oscar Grant's not doing anything that looked like no, he should be tased yeah. for. So, right. exactly. whether or not he was pulling his taser or not, there was nothing... Yeah, nothing right. was happening. Well, it's a twofold argument against tasers. It's, it's, it's an argument against tasers, number one... Because it's just another example like we were talking about before, which is the dude's not doing anything. You probably don't need to tase him. Mm -hmm. But it's also an argument because the cops who defend tasering are always going on about, you know, well, we're training them or they just need to be trained better. If your training is so piss poor Mm -hmm. that you don't know the difference between your taser and your gun. Do you know what I mean? Like... To be, to be trained properly to use a taser, you need to learn about distance, you need to learn about voltage, but if your training is so inadequate that you get your gun and you're like, I think this is my taser. Oh, you know, I mean, clearly yeah, he's that you, lying. That you get that and, flustered when he's not even resisting arrest. It's and like, there's been many things you can see online where people show this is what his gun would have, like, you know, this is what the police issue gun is, this is what a taser looks like. Yeah. This weighs this, like how they weigh differently. Yeah. And how yeah. The, the way you fire them and the way you take the safety off is different. Right. So it's like... That, that you what did you just get it that day you just right the, yeah. and the again just came in that morning right. if, if he's really resisting you hold him down right. and there you was call way more for cops backup. than there were people I mean right. there was way more cops than there were suspects yeah. um, and I mean of course this is all giving him the huge benefit of the doubt that he didn't do it on purpose that he didn't yes exactly no, if you, even if you want to yeah. do that even yeah. if you want to go there yeah. fine but it's all I think we just gave the best case yeah. scenario yeah. <laughs> the best case scenario right. is that he's an absolute Idiot. Yeah, 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 with a gun that the that yeah. the government gave the gun to an gave the power of the police to an absolute idiot, and that's the best case. The worst case is that he that he executed him, yeah. executed him. Yeah, but and, uh, and back to you know Ayanna Jones of the uh, is in the same thing of like how we don't know how, there was no cell phone cameras in there, but how yeah. does that, how does that happen? Again, it's about the value of of. of a black life or, an, or a Latino life or the value right. of the and you know. not only that, I feel like with Detroit people almost view it as like a third world country now mm-hmm. where we just expect awful shit to happen in Detroit all the time. So they have no industrial sector anymore. That's gone. You know, um, car plants have closed down, have gone to Mexico. The The city is absolutely bankrupt. The unemployment rate in Detroit is twice the national average. Yeah. But that's just expected because awful shit happens in Detroit. So when a seven-year-old girl... I mean, imagine if that shit happened in uh, a wealthy white suburb. Right. It would be on Fox News 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. What did the police do wrong? Why did it happen? How can we fix it? But again, because it's Detroit, it's almost like... Yeah, it's it's just expected. That just that's what's happening. What's so. today? Tuesday. Yep, that sounds right. And yeah. it also the thing I hate about this too is this happened. This happened in Oakland too. Is that there's a tendency of certain Americans, conservative Americans, but also uh, Democrats, to want to say things like that was a tragedy, but the cops were doing the best they could. Yeah. There's right. sort of a tendency to, to defend state power. To if defend state power. I worked at Starbucks, and someone said I would like. A Viente coffee. And I shot a seven-year-old. Not doing the best job. <laughs> Not doing the best job. You know job. what I mean? Yeah, also, yeah, yeah. what is a Viente? <laughs> is that how you say it? Damn it. Well, he, he, well that's I, why you shot him. That's not how you pronounce it. Right. Come on. Read the menu. Next. So, here's my question, and this is larger, and we, don't, we probably don't even have time to get into yeah. it. So... I blame the media, obviously. Okay. Because there is a lot of support for, I mean, at least locally. I mean, not even locally. Like, you know, for for extreme cases, for, for Troy Davis, for, you know, uh, for Oscar Grant, there was a pretty great national support. But there are so many cases that we don't hear about on a day-by-day basis that should be getting covered. Happier than with no 
tragic trial ended with a bewildering verdict in Los Angeles, California. The case began on New Year's Day 2009 when Oakland police received a report that there had been a fight on a Bay Area rapid transit train. When officers arrived, they detained a 22-year-old African-American man named Oscar Grant and four of his friends. Then the transit police officer, Johans Messerly, arrived on the scene. As one officer kneeled on Oscar Grant's neck, Officer Messerly shot Mr. Grant in the back. He shot Oscar Grant, an unarmed man who had committed no crime, a man who witnesses say was attempting to defuse the situation. The trial of former Officer Messerly was moved from Oakland to Los Angeles due to extensive media coverage in the Bay Area. Los Angeles prosecutors have not won a murder conviction in a police shooting since 1983. Officer Messerly testified that he accidentally drew his gun, located on his right side, thinking it was his taser, which he kept on his left. Today, the Los Angeles County jury could have found the former officer guilty of second-degree murder, which carries a sentence of 15 years to life. But instead, after deliberating for about six hours over two days, they found Messerly guilty of involuntary manslaughter in the shooting death of Oscar Grant. The conviction carries a sentence of two to four years. What happened to Oscar Grant that day on BART was, as it happens, caught on tape. We've been rolling it, and I want you to just take a look for a second. The officer stands up and fires a shot down, killing Oscar Grant. It's hard to know what to say after seeing that video and seeing the verdict it resulted in. You can note that there was not a single African-American juror, that it was in Los Angeles instead of Oakland, that even if Officer Messerly was reaching for his taser, it was completely and totally uncalled for. Was he going to put a jolt in Grant as he lay prone for no reason? You can say there are a lot of people in Oakland and California and across the country tonight dealing once again with a criminal justice system that seems unremittingly punitive when people that look like they do are allegedly the, the ones who commit the crimes and impossibly forgiving when those same people are the victims. Justice is rooted in fairness. This verdict specifically and the system of criminal justice and law enforcement we've created in this country isn't fair. And it's not justice. Thanks for listening, everyone. So first, I want to mention that it is a new month. It's August. And of course, that means, as it means every month, that it's time to go and vote over at podcastalley.com. And uh, if you weren't around, you didn't notice, last month we started a brand new idea, which was that instead of, uh, instead of just going in and voting for best of the left, I actually joined forces with the good folks over at the Young Turks and also uh, Jack Clark from Blast the Right, and another uh, totally independently produced uh, progressive podcast. And all three of those shows have made efforts in the past to uh, take advantage of Podcast Alley and get ourselves in the top 10 list. And last month for July, we all got together and wanted to support each other and encourage all of our listeners to vote for all of our shows. So, you know, thus making us all rise uh, even higher in, in the top 10 list, getting a little bit more exposure, showing that progressive media is a uh, kicking ass and taking names. So that worked pretty well. Young Turks finished at the number one slot. This show finished at number two. Uh, Blast the Right, I think, took the month off last month. I don't think they came out with a show, but had a really good showing at Podcast Alley anyways because he's got a bunch of uh, devoted people that he uh, can send an email out to. So in any case, I'm calling that experiment a success. We want to go ahead and do it again for this month. So please head over, and there's a link, of course, on my website so you can vote for my show directly. So you can head to bestoftheleft.com or simply go to podcastalley.com and search for all the shows, Best of the Left, The Young Turks, and Blast the Right. You know, if you're going to take the 45 seconds it takes to vote for one, you might as well add an extra 30 seconds and vote for the other two. 
totally not a big deal. And of course, it's really appreciated by all of us. And you get to help spread the word about progressive politics that way. Secondly, today, I actually wanted to read an email that I, I just received yesterday. And it's just it's just a really touching email, um, someone saying thanks for the show. And, um, and it, it made me thankful that I'm able to do the show. And, and it kind of reminded me of why we care about these progressive politics and, and kind of brought things home a little bit. And so uh, I wanted to read this email and I'll, I'll leave the name out just in case, you know, she didn't say she wanted to be anonymous, but anyways, so she writes, I'm probably not a typical listener. I'm a 57 year old Hispanic woman with two disabled sons and have been plunged into poverty by their healthcare costs, even though I make $37,000 a year. I listen to every one of your broadcasts. I love the editing. I get to take advantage of your skills to skim through the news. You've introduced me to so much, no cable, no car, sometimes not enough food, but I have your podcast on my son's Make-A-Wish provided iPod. And so that, that's what she had to say. And, you know, just, I mean, it's obviously, it's a really nice letter and, you know, makes me feel good about how she enjoys the show. But more importantly for me, it's a reminder of like why, why we care about this stuff, why we advocate for a, a better and cheaper and more inclusive healthcare system and why we're in favor of labor unions in the most general sense to increase wages for workers and and you know why we are uh, you know opposed to the income disparity so that less money is going to the very 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 top of the income brackets and more is is given to uh, to everyone else because we end up with a healthier, stronger middle class and people are able to take care of themselves better and they're not, um, you know, put on, you know, an incredible strain on their lives by, by healthcare costs. Um, you know, of course, more income coupled with a better, better healthcare system would make it enormous difference, I'm sure, in, in her life and, you know, millions of other people's lives. And so, um, you know, so I, I do the show because I like it. I really enjoy it. Um, I feel like the news that I help, you know, I mean, the new, it's, the news is out there anyways. You can get it other ways, but it's, I, I like to think that I'm amplifying the, uh, th these commentaries and, and news and opinions that are, that I'm, uh, playing on the show. And, you know, I do it because I think it's important. And that email kind of summed that up for me. So I, you know, I just wanted to read that and let her know that I appreciate that sentiment a lot. Uh, you know, I love that she wrote in, um, you know, but you know, what I love more than anything, like the comments I love more than any other are the people who, uh, who are so excited that I was able to introduce them to new sources of, of news and commentary and, you know, whatever shows, uh, that they hear on this podcast and then they go and become subscribers to those shows and, you know, those become their new favorite show and they love the, the new commentary and they hear these new voices. Uh, I, I just, I love that because, I mean, to me, that's, that's what this show has always been about is, is promoting the best and the brightest that's out there. And, and, you know, everything I play on the show are from people that I love and probably a lot of people who are listening are, are familiar with the feeling that you got when Air America first uh, first came around, and you know Progressive Talk Radio first came into existence, and it's it was such a relief. It was, you know, it's like oh my god, I'm not alone, and I, I get that a lot too. You know that this show and and all the other progressive shows out there uh, make people feel like oh, I'm not the one who took the crazy pill. There are other people who feel this way too, and and so that's great. I love I love that when I'm able to introduce you to to new sources of information because because I know what it's like to listen to all these sources and get that good feeling you you get when you know you're not alone anymore. So if this show ends up being a you know gateway drug for you uh, to to get into all sorts of other shows, then I chalk that up as a big big win for me. Now, speaking of being grateful for being able to do this show, let me uh, wholeheartedly thank a couple of members who obviously make this show possible today. Uh, Christy S. signed up for a full-year membership starting on February 1st, and and then also in February, Julie C. signed up for a monthly membership and has stuck with the show ever since then. So huge thanks to Julie and Christy and all the members who make this show possible. 
obviously without you guys it just would not be the same in the least so uh so i really appreciate everyone who signed up anyone who's considering signing up made a small donation uh helped spread the word told your friends about the show anything you do to help uh makes a huge difference and uh is really all i ask in return for uh for enjoying the show you know i just i hope you can find a way to contribute whatever you're able uh, to help uh, keep it going strong. So that's going to be it for today. To stay in tune with the show between episodes, of course, uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us on both of those places. Interesting things happen there uh, from time to time. You never know. For details on the show itself, check us out on the website where you'll find links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode there in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month now, thanks entirely to the members and donors who support the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh